In modern times, this passage that we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah 9, it's probably most famous for its contribution to the Christmas Symphony Orchestra, Handel's Messiah. Have you guys heard of Handel's Messiah? It was written in 1741, which is almost 300 years ago, and it is still some of the most recognizable Christmas music in the world today. And it quotes Isaiah 9-6 directly, of course, in the King James, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, my guess is that if it was not for that single verse that most of you would think this does not feel like a Christmas passage at all. This does not feel like a part of the Bible that's talking about Christmas at all. In fact, let's just do this real quick. If you had to describe Christmas in one word, what would it be? A little audience participation, especially you kids. If you had to describe Christmas in one word, what would it be? Shout them out. Presence. Family. Family. What else? Joy. Joy. Good job. What else? Christmas tree. That's two words, but we'll go with tree. Good. What else? Traditions. Good. Gingerbread. Happiness. Magical. Great job. Now, very good. I actually did a Google search this week of the top words that people think of when describing Christmas, and many of those words were on the list. I'll give them to you here. Peace, joy, love, family, merry, jolly, blessed, festive, hopeful, wonderful. Now, surprising, I thought in church somebody would for sure say Jesus. (laughs) Google did not put Jesus on the list, which was not surprising. But so here's the question. Is that the tone, is that the feeling you get when reading Isaiah chapter 9? Now, if you're a good critical reader, kind of, but not really. Verse 1 says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times. Isaiah 9 is full of conflict. It's full of this incredible contrast. There's at least five powerful contrasts in this passage that I want to point out to you. The first one is former times versus latter times. Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. And what was going on in the nation of Israel at that time is the nation was fractured, it was weak, and in many ways it really was on the brink of extinction. Can you imagine that? This is a civilization on the brink of extinction. And all of it was their own fault. They had rejected God, they worshipped idols, and they had been doing that for generations. But Isaiah says that's the former times. In the future, in the latter times, that's going to change. That's the first contrast. Contrast number two, gloom and distress, he says, will become honor and glory. Now, what is the gloom and the distress of the former times that Isaiah is talking about? We have to go back to chapter 8. The end of chapter 8, he says this, and they will look to the earth. He's talking about the nation of Israel. They're going to look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound like Christmas. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't sound like Christmas. What is he talking about? 
Well, what Isaiah was saying specifically was going to happen to Israel is what took place in the book of 2 Kings chapter 15. Verse 29 says this, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilesar, king of Assyria, came and captured all of these regions in the northern kingdom, including Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So here's what's going on. Because of Israel's rebellion, because of their rejection of God, because of their worship of idols, their disobedience, God, in his sovereignty, allowed them to be conquered by the Assyrians. Foreign power. And I want you to try to imagine what this would be like for a minute, okay? I know this is going to be difficult. But imagine for a second that the Canadians descended out of the north, okay? Hundreds of thousands of troops, tanks, missiles, and they come into the United States and they conquer us. I know a couple of you guys served in the military. I see you shaking your heads. You're thinking that would never happen. Just imagine though. So all of your home, all of your property, your jobs, all of your wealth, all of our collective wealth as a nation it's taken from us. And then they march us on foot hundreds of miles up into Canada to be their slaves. This is what happened. This actually happened to the nation of Israel. And it's worse than that. Our culture is fairly close to Canadian culture. The Israelites, they had to learn an entirely different language. They had to wear different clothing. They were given different names. In many ways, this was the extinction of the Israelites. They were erased off the face of the earth. It was an incredibly dark, horrible time of oppression. But Isaiah says in the latter times that gloom and darkness is going to become glory and honor. For Galilee and for Zebulun and for Naphtali, these are geographic regions in northern Israel. Contrast number three. He says, blindness and darkness will become seeing in the light. So in the former times, darkness. And not just dark circumstances. These were dark times in the nation of Israel. But he's talking about dark thinking. He's saying the way the people thought, it was just infused with idolatry and sin and greed and selfishness and hatred and evil and division. But not in the future. In the future, light. People's eyes are going to be fixed. People's minds will be fixed. They'll see the truth. Contrast four and five. He says this small nation, this little group of God's people will become a huge nation. And this oppressed nation is going to become a victorious, free nation. Isaiah 9 is full of conflict and contrast. Now, you might be thinking, we are not Israelites living in the northern kingdom in 700 B.C., so what does this mean for you? What does this have to do with Christmas? Well, what happened to the nation of Israel almost 3,000 years ago is still emblematic of the human condition. Let me illustrate this with a question, okay? You guys ready? More audience participation. Multiple choice question. I'm going to make it easy on you, all right? So here's the question. Is the world today, in general, a place that is A, full of light and joy and peace and happiness, or B, is it full of darkness and sadness and conflict? Now, before you answer, 
I understand. The answer is kind of, well, it depends, doesn't it? It certainly depends on where you live in the world today. If we lived in the Middle East, if we lived in Ukraine, you would say darkness, war, death. You live in Altoona, Iowa, fairly peaceful. Of course, it depends on who you are as well. It depends on the specific community you live in. There are communities in the United States, even in the Midwest, that are turned upside down right now. It depends even on the specific family that you live in. So it depends on your perspective, but I think if you were to take a general survey of the human situation going back 100 years, or 500 years, or 1,000 years, or 2,700 years to the time of Isaiah, what you would find is that the world is a very dark place. It's a very dangerous place. It's a very sad and painful place. And what happens is occasionally a glimmer of light breaks through. It's not the other way around. It's not that the world is just full of happiness and joy and light and peace, and then occasionally something bad happens. It's a dark place. And maybe you have a more optimistic view of the human condition than Isaiah did. In fact, I would say in our culture, at Christmas time, Christmas at its best is all about seeing the good in people. It's a time of year where we dare to hope that goodness will eventually prevail in the world. The problem is that history is constantly crushing our optimism. <laughs> so who knows, how many history buffs do we have here? I see my dad is here tonight, so I know he knows the answer. Who knows what the deadliest war in human history was? Say it out loud if you know. Anybody? World War II, Maddox, good job. World War II, and it's not close. In World War II, there was roughly 80 million casualties of war. 80 million. And after World War II, the leaders of the world, all over the world, the leaders got together and they said, we can never let this happen again. It was so catastrophic, so devastating. So do you know what they did? They formed something called the United Nations. The United Nations met for the first time in San Francisco, California in June of 1945. And in the founding charter of the UN, do you know what the stated goal was? This is a quote, direct quote, promoting international cooperation and maintaining peace and security among nations. So you have the most powerful leaders in the world gathering together using all of their diplomatic power, real resources, real military resources, and the goal is maintaining peace. And since that founding charter almost 80 years ago, do you know how many years there have gone by where the world has been without war? Zero. Zero. The world is still full of darkness and death and brokenness. And so even though we're not Israelites living 700 BC, the human heart still longs for peace. The world longs for peace. And we're still faced with the same question of the audience of Isaiah in 2700 BC, which is, do you want to live in the former times or do you want to live in the latter times? Do you want to live in the gloom or the glory? Do you want to live in the darkness or the light? Do you want to live in a time of war and sorrow or peace 
and joy in freedom. This is one of the big, timeless, overarching ideas from the book of Isaiah. It's that the world desperately longs for peace. The world longs for peace and for joy and for freedom. And Isaiah says, good news. That time is coming. Peace is coming. Joy is coming. Light is coming into the world. How? Where is it going to come from? Verse 6, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Where is it going to come from? Three points that Isaiah says. First, he says, a son will be born. Where is peace going to come from? A son will be born. This is the solution to a world full of conflict. A baby boy is going to be born, and that boy is going to become a man. And that man, he says, point number two, will be the king of a new nation. He's going to be a king of a new nation. This is what it means that the government will be on his shoulders. Ruling and reigning and leading and governing will be his responsibility. It's not going to be the United States' responsibility. It's not going to be England's responsibility. It's not going to be China's responsibility. It's going to be his responsibility. And where the leaders of the world have failed for all of human history, he won't fail. What's this new nation going to be like? Verse 7, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This is going to be a nation that is vast. It's going to be a nation that is infinitely prosperous. There'll be no famine. There'll be no poverty. It's going to be perfectly just and righteous. Can you imagine an entire nation, an entire civilization of people with perfect justice, perfect righteousness? And he says this kingdom will never end. It will last forever. Third point, he says the son... This boy who will be born will be God himself in human flesh. He says he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the promise of Isaiah, is that God will become a man, be born as a baby, and establish his eternal kingdom full of light and peace and righteousness. Now, one point of clarification, I thought about just skipping over this, but I couldn't resist. I think this is actually important. Isaiah is not saying that the son and the father are the same person. Okay, so in Christianity, we worship a God that is a trinity, triune, one God existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all three distinct. So the Son is not the Father. Why will He be named Eternal Father? It's not because there's no distinction between the Son and the Father. He's named Eternal Father in the sense that He makes the adoption of Christians into the family of God possible through His life and death and resurrection. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now this begs the question, and you already know the answer, but who specifically is this baby? The nation of Israel wondered this for years, but who is he? Well, the Bible tells us 
in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And it's with remarkable clarity. We're not just sort of loosely connecting the dots here. Look at Matthew 4, verse 12. It's talking about Jesus. And he says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So Jesus, born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, born of a virgin, adopted by his father, adopted father, Joseph. And where did they live? In Bethlehem? No. They lived in Nazareth. That's where they're from. That's where Jesus grew up. But, but when John was arrested, so when he was about 30 years old, right before he began his public ministry, it says he moved. He went to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, where? By the sea. In the territory, where? Of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah directly. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. How is this nation going to go from so small and localized to vast? Well, he points to it. It's it's Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. This is the northern border of Israel where they butted up against the non-Israelite nations. And this is tipping the hand. They're going to be part of it. They're coming in. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is one example of hundreds of prophecies in Isaiah that are fulfilled by the life of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus born as a poor peasant to Mary and Joseph is the promised child. He is God in human flesh. And the kingdom of heaven is the eternal kingdom he ushered in and rules over now. So where does peace come from? It comes from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Now, what will peace mean? Because here's what I'm guessing is going on in most of your brains. You're thinking, okay, great. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Prince of Peace, awesome. Going to usher in peace, great. Where's the peace? Do you guys see it? You look around the world, where's the peace? There's war everywhere. There's death and pain everywhere. So what is this peace to mean? Well, it means at least three things. First, it means there will be no conflict between people. Isaiah is clear about this. Verse 4, he says, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah envisions a day when there will be no more war, no more fighting. And not just no more war among nations, there's going to be no conflict, no fighting among people, individuals. How incredible is that? I might not know you, but here's what I am very confident is true about you, no matter who you are is that the most painful scars of your life are not physical. They are relational. Life is full of relational conflict. People have been mean to you. People have been unloving to you. People have lied about you. People have said terrible things to you. People have abandoned you. And you've probably done some of that to other people as well. And that is the most painful thing in life. It's relational pain. And so Isaiah envisions a time in the future where the Prince of Peace will make it so that there's no conflict 
among people. Perfect unity, perfect relationships, perfect love. Now, is that day here today? Certainly not. That day's not here yet, but that day is coming in the future when Christ returns. Number two, there will be no conflict with creation. So the world isn't only a dangerous place because of people. The world is inherently dangerous. Have you ever seen a tornado? Have you ever seen a flood? Did you guys live here in 1993? Have you ever seen an earthquake? I haven't. Never been through an earthquake. There's volcanoes. There's hurricanes. Not to mention... Sharks, (laughs) crocodiles, hippopotamus, lions. Hippopotamus, most dangerous animal in the world, land animal. But Isaiah envisions a time in the future. Look at this, Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. Now that day is also not here yet. That day is coming when Christ returns. What else does peace mean? There's a third aspect of peace. This is the most important one. And this is the one that's already arrived. See, these other two, the first two, they're coming when Jesus comes back. The first one is already here with the advent of Jesus in his first coming. There's no waiting for this peace. You can have this peace today because of Jesus. Number three, no conflict with God. No conflict with each other, no conflict with creation, and no conflict with God. Jesus' very name means Savior. Did you know that? That's what Jesus means. It means Savior, which implies you need to be saved. That's, That's what it means. Needing a Savior means you need to be saved from something. You don't call the fire department unless what happens? There's a fire. You need to be, my house is burning down. Help. You don't call the paramedics unless you need serious medical help. You need to be saved. And so Jesus is our savior, meaning there's danger for humanity. What is it that Jesus came to save us from? It's not primarily war. It's not primarily a broken creation. Matthew 121 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. Jesus came to save us from sin, but more specifically, Jesus came to save you from God. Did you know that? Jesus came to save you from the wrath of his Father. Romans 5, 9 says, How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, talking about Jesus, will we be saved through him from wrath? From wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. The most dangerous force in the world is not killer whales or tigers. It's not tornadoes or earthquakes. And it's not Russian dictators. It's not Middle Eastern terrorists. It is God. God is the most dangerous force in the universe. Think about this. How is it that the Prince of Peace is going to bring about peace when he comes back? Well, he says in verse 4, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke. Verse 5, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Who's going to do the shattering? Who's going to do the burning? It's not us. It's him. 
Jesus is coming back in power and glory to crush and punish evil and sin. Isn't that good news? That's amazing news. But here's what's going on in the back of your head is you're thinking, well, what if I've sinned? (laughs) What if I'm a sinner? Then which side of this equation am I going to be on? What if you've lied? What if you've stolen? What if you've been greedy? What if you've been selfish or mean or unloving? What if you've been lustful? Then what happens to you when the Prince of Peace comes to destroy sinners? Isaiah 48:22 says this, "There is no peace for the wicked," says the Lord. The greatest problem in the world today is that humanity, we have made ourselves God's enemies. We are under his wrath. We are destined to be punished by him for our sin. So what is the solution? What's the solution? This is why Jesus came the first time, not in glory, not with a sword, but he came as a humble baby peasant born in a manger. It was to deal with your sin. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 53, talking about Jesus. He says, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The solution, the reason Jesus came was to be your substitute, to stand in your place, to take the punishment from his father that you have earned for yourself so you could be set free, so that you could be adopted as a child of God and have an inheritance in his kingdom. And this message is all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. In Colossians 1, verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is why on that first Christmas, Luke chapter 2, verse 13, There's shepherds in a nearby field in Bethlehem, and it says, Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So here's my one question for you. You can talk about this this afternoon as you're eating Christmas dinner together. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Most of us are not going to see peace in our lifetime unless Christ returns, which I hope happens. We're not going to see peace on earth. We're not going to see perfect peace in our relationships, but you can have peace with God. Do you have peace with God? Do you know God? Are you walking with God? Are you experiencing friendship with God? Jesus has made that available to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have solved our greatest problem. God, thank you that a day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more darkness, no more war. There will be perfect peace. 
God, I thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself and came into the world as a poor, despised peasant. And then you went to the cross and you suffered and you died to purchase our peace. God, I pray that that would be the thing, that would be the truth that all of our Christmas celebrating would be undergirded by, it'd be rooted in, Lord. I pray that we would talk about that today as we gather with our families. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.